Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 6. The Devil's Greatest Enemy. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Today, in the final context episode of this podcast's launch, we take a look north of the English border, to the realm of the Scots. Of course, we have already mentioned Scotland, sometimes in passing and other times in detail, particularly regarding its relationship with England. In this episode, however, we will be examining the early life and reign of James VI of Scotland, the future King of England and Ireland. James was born in June 1566. His mother was, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, the granddaughter of Margaret Tudor, the eldest daughter of Henry VII, and sister to Henry VIII. His father was Henry Stuart, the Lord Darnley, who was also a grandchild of Margaret Tudor. As we touched on in episode 4, Mary and Darnley were both legitimate claimants to the English throne, through this dynastic connection to the Tudors. They were a potential threat to the stability of Elizabeth I's position, a focal point for both domestic dissidents and foreign powers who sought an alternative monarch on the throne of England. The royal couple had their own domestic issues to contend with. Their marriage not only provoked Elizabeth, but also Scotland's Protestant nobility. Darnley was a Catholic, as was Mary, and their union was feared to be the first step in the restoration of the old religion. What followed was the Chaseabout Raid, a rebellion where both armies avoided one another until the rebels, led by the Earl of Moray, realised that their position was untenable and they fled to England. The royal marriage had other domestic issues in the other sense of the word, with the honeymoon period lasting little more than a month. Darnley was repeatedly described as violent, insolent, and a notorious drinker, resentful of his position as mere consort to the Queen. He desired to be made crown matrimonial, 
a position that would have effectively made him the equal partner of Mary and her heir should she die childless. Mary refused. Darnley later left the court, and Mary became close to her secretary, David Rizzio. Rizzio was an Italian in Mary's service, and by all accounts, they got on very well. Very well indeed. Rumours began to circle that the Queen and her secretary were having an affair. Now, in all likelihood, there was never such an affair, just a low-born foreigner attracting resentment for his success, whose enemies spread rumours. Still, rumours were a powerful thing, and when news spread that the Queen was pregnant, it only added to the gossip. What if this child, the future monarch of Scotland, was not the son of Darnley, but rather of the secretary? After all, Mary's pregnancy was announced after Darnley left Mary's side. Darnley returned to court after several months of absence, and in this case, absence had certainly not made the heart grow fonder. Meeting only irregularly with his wife, and often just to convince her to make him crown matrimonial, Darnley went so far as to conspire with the exiled leaders of the chase about raid, aiding their return to Scotland. On the 9th of March, 1566, Darnley assisted the rebels in seizing Holyrood Palace during dinner, who overpowered and killed many of the royal guard. Darnley, for his part, held his pregnant wife at gunpoint. He demanded that Rizzio, the man who had supposedly cuckolded him, be brought forward. Mary, in the face of several men who had attacked her residence, killed her guards, and were now threatening her with blade and gun, refused. She would not give up her servant, friend, and maybe lover to face the lethal fate which clearly awaited him, even in the face of her gun-toting husband. All this bravery was sadly for naught, as the palace was searched, and Rizzio found and presented to the conspirators. In front of the queen, Rizzio was stabbed more than 50 times, thrown down a staircase, and stripped of all his valuables. After this, Mary somehow managed to convince Darnley to abandon the conspirators, and the two fled to Dunbar Castle to raise an army. The rebels were then evicted from Edinburgh, and Mary began issuing pardons to those who had not been present for the attack on Holyrood Palace and the murder of Rizzio. This quite cunningly, split the conspirators. The Earl of Moray was one such noble who took the pardon, as he had been in England at the time and only arrived in Edinburgh after the fact. The others were condemned as traitors, and many fled the kingdom. You will not be surprised to hear, despite defecting back to his wife and helping defeat the rebels, aiding in a coup d'etat and brutally murdering Mary's friend, did not help mend Darnley's relationship with his wife. James knew none of this, mainly due to the fact that he hadn't been born yet. The world that the future king would come into was one riven by sectarian and political conflict. His mother had faced numerous rebellions against her reign, and his father was either an estranged and despised drunkard, or a mutilated Italian corpse. Darnley had fled Edinburgh shortly after his son's Catholic baptism on the 17th of December, fearing for his life after Mary held a meeting with a number of nobles on the, quote, problem of Darnley, 
which was to be resolved either through divorce or, rather euphemistically, quote, put off one way or another. A.E. McRobert, however, describes Darnley as having sulked and not attended the ceremony of his son's baptism, having left for Glasgow not out of fear, but because he was suffering from either smallpox or syphilis. Whether he knew it or not, Darnley was now an obstacle to the ambitions of several powerful people, mainly the Earl of Moray, the Earl of Bothwell, and of course, Mary herself, and he had few supporters. He had betrayed his wife and queen, and then betrayed his fellow conspirators, and he was still harping on about being made crown matrimonial. Still, relations between Mary and Darnley seemed to have been improving, at least on the surface, with her repeatedly making visits to see him, and eventually convincing him to return to Edinburgh. On the 10th of February, at roughly two in the morning, the skyline of Edinburgh was lit up by a massive explosion. The entire city awoke to find the old provost's lodgings, Darnley's current place of residence, a smouldering crater. A few hours after the explosion, two bodies were found outside the city walls. They were seemingly unmarked by the explosion, but had clearly been travelling in some haste. Initial reports suggest that the two men had been strangled, although it is also possible that they had both suffered internal injuries from the explosion that had been missed during a cursory examination. The bodies were, of course, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, King Consort of Scotland, and his personal valet. Two other servants were also killed by the explosion. Now, there are no end of subjects for Darnley's murder. The Earl of Bothwell, the Queen's new favourite and a famous rival of Darnley, is at the top of the list, but Darnley had also betrayed several important nobles after the murder of Rizzio, and so the Earl of Moray joins Bothwell in the lineup, along with his compatriots. And, of course, the Queen of Scots and husband of Darnley herself must be considered a viable suspect. She had means, motive, and opportunity. Means, because she was the Queen, and could have ordered gunpowder planted and Darnley strangled. Opportunity, because she was visiting Darnley at the old provost's lodgings just hours before the explosion, before having to leave to attend a wedding. Motive? Well, which one do you want? Conspiring with her enemies? Being a national embarrassment? Murdering her friend, if not her lover, in front of her, and killing dedicated servants in the process? Or even her desire to be free from an unhappy marriage? This isn't speculation after the fact by historians. Even some contemporaries considered the idea. Elizabeth of England would even write to Mary, quote, I should ill fulfil the office of a faithful cousin or an affectionate friend if I did not tell you what all the world is thinking. Men say that, instead of seizing the murderers, you are looking through your fingers while they escape, that you will not seek revenge on those who have done you so much pleasure as though the deed would never have taken place had the doers of it been assured of impunity. For myself, I beg you to believe that I would not harbour such a thought. End quote. Whoever was responsible, Darnley was dead, and Mary was once more a widow, while James was only three months old. Mary then took the bold, some would say foolish, decision to marry the Earl of Bothwell just a few months after Darnley's death. Bothwell was one of the chief suspects in the death of her late husband, 
and marrying anyone so soon after his death only added to the controversy and added fuel to the fire that Mary and Bothwell had conspired together. I say she decided to marry Bothwell, but again there is little certainty, as Bothwell supposedly kidnapped the Queen, took her to Dunbar Castle, raped her, and then forced her to marry him in a Protestant ceremony on the 15th of May 1567. Understandably, there was some opposition to this marriage. Many contemporaries and historians consider this to have been pre-arranged between Mary and Bothwell, especially since Mary was no shrinking violet and could have had Bothwell executed for this crime simply enough. No, as far as the nobility were concerned, this was an outrage. This man was the prime suspect in the murder of the king consort, and here he was, marrying his widow. What followed was expected in Scottish politics. An assembly of lords denounced the marriage, both sides assembled an army of roughly 2,000 men each, and they met at Carberry Hill, outside of Edinburgh, on the 15th of June. There was a standoff, but Mary's army rapidly disintegrated from desertion, and she surrendered to the rebels, where she was taken prisoner. A month later, while in custody, she miscarried twins, and on the 24th of July, she formally abdicated to her one-year-old son, James. Mary would, of course, soon escape from confinement and fled to the welcoming arms and jailers of her cousin, Elizabeth. Bothwell himself fled the kingdom, only to be arrested in Denmark for his role in Darnley's death, going insane and dying in 1578. So James was now King of Scots, but he was far too busy learning how to walk and talk to do much governing so his realm was administered by various regencies over the next decade and a half. James was raised a Protestant, while his regents bickered and fought and died. The Earl of Moray was his guardian until 1570, when he was assassinated. The Earl of Lennox, father of Darnley, became regent following him, until he was shot and killed in a skirmish with English forces. The Earl of Mar succeeded him for a year before dying of illness, leading to the nine-year rule of the Earl of Morton. James assumed his full authority as king in his own right in 1578 in a declaration following the Earl's removal from power, only for Morton to return to power a month later when he captured the person of the king. Morton would be outmaneuvered two years later, being accused during a council meeting of the murder of the king's father, Lord Darnley, and immediately being arrested and executed in 1581. The new power behind the throne was the new Earl of Lennox, a favourite of the young king, until James was captured in another plot called the Ruthven Raid, and forced to order his banishment in 1582. Lennox would never return to Scotland, dying in Paris in 1583, but James's affection for the Earl would transfer to his family, and both he and Charles would keep the Lennox family in their favour. Once James was free of his captors, he summoned his cousin, Francis Stuart, the fifth Earl Bothwell, to court out of respect for his family ties. He would come to regret that decision. In 1585, James began negotiating his betrothal to a Danish princess. He was 19, and his life up to this point had largely consisted of him being manipulated this way and that as a pawn of overmighty vassals. A foreign marriage would immediately grant him greater legitimacy, and in the worst case, a friendly refuge and base for reconquest should the endless series of coups require a quick escape from his kingdom. 
Naturally, James also had to provide for the succession, and a royal marriage would hopefully provide him with a royal heir. He sent out feelers to Frederick II of Denmark in 1585 about marrying his eldest daughter Elizabeth, but for one reason or another the negotiations fell through, as they did again in 1587. Also in 1585, Bothwell was accused of attacking the royal castle at Stirling, although he would deny this. In 1586, James signed the Treaty of Berwick with Elizabeth, the defensive agreement discussed in episode 4, which promised military assistance to both kingdoms should either be invaded, and granting James an English pension of £4,000. As stated in that episode, this was likely an acknowledgement of James's status as Elizabeth's heir, and an attempt to soften the blow of Mary's execution months later. When news of this act reached Edinburgh, there was uproar. Bothwell was amongst those advocating a military response. He marched into Holyrood Palace in full armour, while the rest of the court was in mourning clothes. When challenged on this breach of decorum by the king, he supposedly replied, This is my mourning. Bothwell was among those confined for a while as the diplomatic situation cooled, but the relationship between king and earl was strained and at times openly hostile. In 1589, he led a rebellion of Catholic lords against the king, was declared a traitor and defeated and imprisoned. But punishment was deferred, and the Earl would be released and made Lord Lieutenant of the Borders. Meanwhile, James's marriage prospects had improved. Frederick of Denmark instead offered James the hand, and presumably the rest, of his second daughter, Anna. And in 1589, the Earl Marischal, George Keith, went to the Danish court to stand in for James in a proxy marriage. Anna boarded a ship to travel to Scotland, apparently thrilled with the match, and set off with the Earl Marischal. And now we come to one of the most famous events during James's Scottish reign. The princess's fleet was beset by storms and forced to the coast of Norway on the 10th of September. James, who had been waiting for two weeks at Port Seton, just up the coast from Edinburgh, received word of the fleet's troubles, but was promised that the voyage would continue in the next few days. Once it did, the storms returned, forcing the ships back to Norway. On the 10th of October, James received a letter from his new wife lamenting that the voyage would be abandoned until the spring, and that she would winter in Oslo. Now, it would be perfectly acceptable, and indeed expected, for James to leave it at that. He had a kingdom to rule, and Anna seemed safe enough in Oslo. Come spring, she would continue her voyage and would be with him soon enough. That was not enough for James. By the 22nd of October, James had made arrangements for his absence, and he set sail from Leith with a 300-strong retinue and a fleet of his own. He would not see Scotland again until May, and he left knowing he could be gone for some time. Now, considering his reign up to this point, James was either supremely confident that his government was secure enough to handle his absence, or he was head over heels in love with Anna and decided that she was worth risking a kingdom over. Maybe it was a bit of both. Less than a week later, despite the best efforts of the storm, James reached the coast of Norway, and in November 1588, James and Anna got married in person, 
The Scottish account presents James as rushing straight off the boat, in his travelling clothes, sweeping Anna off her feet and kissing her, quote, in the Scottish fashion. Whatever that means. Anna was apparently not impressed by this, as it wasn't the Danish way. The Danish version of events has James follow all the diplomatic niceties announced by heralds, surrounded by his retinue and in ceremonial dress. I leave it up to you to choose your preferred story. The two newlyweds enjoyed a month in Oslo, before boarding their combined fleets and setting sail for Anna's native Denmark, which they reached in the new year. Apparently having enjoyed it so much the first time around, the two monarchs had another wedding ceremony in Kronborg, and they stayed in Denmark until April. During this time, James of course spent some time with his new in-laws, Queen Sophie, young King Christian, and Christian's four regents. They also attended the marriage of Elizabeth to the Duke of Brunswick, which must have been something of an experience for both James and Anna. Yes, darling, let's go watch the wedding of the one that got away. When they again set sail, they again suffered intense storms, but managed to power through until they arrived back at Leith on the 1st of May. Anna was crowned in the chapel of Holyrood Palace in the first Protestant coronation in Scotland on the 17th of May, 1590, nine months after she was first proxy married. It's a romantic story, but there's a dark side that listeners of the history of witchcraft will know all about. James returned convinced that his wife, and then himself, had been targeted by witchcraft, and began one of the largest witch hunts in Scottish history. The Danes, likewise, conducted their own hunt for the attempted murder of their princess, and between six and twelve women were executed in Copenhagen for witchcraft. The Scottish trials were recorded and publicised in the News from Scotland pamphlet. Quite a nice piece of propaganda that was printed in London and probably aimed to prepare the English for James as king. While James was away, Bothwell had been one of the leading men of the kingdom, the Lord Admiral, and technically he was in charge of the king's vessels. But during the North Berwick witch hunt, his name came up. To cut a long story short, Bothwell was summoned to the Privy Council in April 1591 to address the accusations that had been made by the tortured witches. Despite denying the claims that he had offered treasure and food to the witches in return for their sinking of James's ship, he was arrested and imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. He escaped on the 21st of June and was later denounced by the Privy Council as, quote, in the hands of Satan, and declared his lands and titles forfeit. Bothwell, or one of his supporters, published their own proclamation denying it all, stating that his word was worth more than that of a confessed heretic, and that the accuser was pressured to name him by Bothwell's enemies. He later wrote to James personally, begging him for mercy and denouncing the accusations as the lies of both his and the king's enemies. James responded by reading the letter aloud in court so that, quote, all the presents might know the contents and his evil acceptance thereof, end quote. In December, Bothwell attempted that old favourite of Scottish lords who want to persuade the king. At the head of an armed body of men, Bothwell attacked Holyrood Palace, because that's just the way Scottish politics works. Bothwell had two aims, to capture the king and to kill his chief rival, John Maitland. The king and his family barricaded the doors to his room, and despite trying to burn and hammer their way through, Bothwell's men had to withdraw after the arrival of royal reinforcements. 
In February of 1592, Bothwell's main accuser was executed for witchcraft on Castle Hill. He was strangled on the stake and his body burnt. If he had been a useful weapon against Bothwell, he was no longer necessary. Bothwell was outlawed and a traitor to the realm. The Earl once more attempted to capture the King, attacking Falkland Palace in June 1592 with 400 men, only to once more be driven off. The third time was the charm for the following year, when Bothwell had the aid of an inside man and succeeded in capturing the King. In a fine act of theatre, Bothwell marched up to the King with his sword unsheathed, only to drop to one knee and, quote, offering his sword in surrender and loudly calling for the king's pardon, end quote. Among his demands, for make no mistake, these were demands, not requests, was the return of his estates and a fair trial on the charges of witchcraft. The trial date was set, and the plotters arranged for their actions, and their previous actions, to be condoned after the fact. Bothwell now found himself in a bit of a dilemma, He effectively had two options, neither of them good. Either he could kill the king, or, eventually, he had to yield power back to him. Killing the king had significantly worse ramifications, and so he was content to have his name cleared in a trial and hope he could weather James's anger in one of his newly returned castles. In August, the trial went ahead, and surprise, surprise, Bothwell was acquitted. But Bothwell had overplayed his hand. By enacting his coup, he had convinced many of his peers that he was dangerous, and abandoning Edinburgh after his acquittal and returning power to the king was foolish. Whatever the law said, whatever a court packed with his supporters had decided, he had rebelled against the king, took him captive, and forced him to agree to his terms. This was James Stuart, one of the most vocal proponents of the divine right of kings, and you tried to burn down his bedroom door. With Bothwell out of Edinburgh, James's former allies returned, including Maitland, and by September the concessions made at a figurative, and sometimes literal, sword edge were reversed. Bothwell, again dispossessed, fled south to England, James's apparent ally and benefactor. Elizabeth soon allowed him to return to Scotland with an English army, because despite being allies, this was how early modern politics worked. Bothwell was once more defeated, and then joined up with Scotland's Catholic lords. In March 1595, this combined rebellion was destroyed, with the Catholic lords either taking a short exile, or converting to Presbyterianism, or both. Except for Bothwell. He had burnt every bridge he had, and would roam Europe for a few years before settling in Italy. He died in 1612, in abject poverty, with a reputation for sorcery, and for necromancy. Throughout this time, James had been echoing the political reforms of his southern neighbour, particularly in his attempts to enforce royal authority. As we touched on in episode 1, Edinburgh had its own problems with its rebellious borderlands, in this case meaning Gaeldom and the Borderlands. In the eyes of Edinburgh's officials, their economies were primitive, with few towns, and their language and customs were barbaric. Many remained Catholic and were a constant source of rebellion. The Earls of Errol, Huntley and Angus, Bothwell's allies during his rebellions, were finally humbled in the aftermath of their defeat. As Jane Olmeyer, Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin, puts it, James, quote, launched five 
fire and sword expeditions along the western seaboard between 1596 and 1608, expropriating where possible lands belonging to the insubordinate MacGregors, MacLeods, MacLeans, and MacDonalds. End quote. In 1598, James demanded Highland landowners to provide legal deeds to their holdings, and of course, many had never had such documents. Failure to provide them could be punished with fines and revocations of land, and reinforced royal jurisdiction over those who actually had valid deeds. Once James rules from London, we will see further attempts to rein in his rebellious border lords, their traditional role now obsolete. While neither James nor his son was succeed in the total eradication of Gaeldom's quote, barbaric customs, they exercised a remarkable level of authority over territories that had been sources of rebellion for centuries. Much like the English experience in Ireland, the varying levels of success that administrators had in these processes conditioned the official mind. In the words of Olmeyer, quote, Ireland, the borders, and the highlands and islands all served, to some degree or other, as laboratories of empire, end quote. Over the course of this podcast, we shall see exactly how the British put these lessons into practice. On the 24th of March, 1603, Elizabeth Tudor died. She had ruled as Queen of England and Ireland for 44 years, and her reign had seen multiple attempts to colonise Ireland and the New World, the collapse of the previous diplomatic order and war with the greatest power in Europe, the firm establishment of a Protestant Church of England, and the expansion and development of the English navy. She had never wed, using her eligibility to great effect on the diplomatic scene, but this had consequences. When she died at the age of 69, she had no heir apparent, no child of her own to inherit her crown. Yet, Elizabeth and her court had still prepared. As planned, on the day of the Queen's death, James VI, Stuart, King of Scots, was proclaimed King of England and Ireland in London. For the first time, the three kingdoms of the British Isles were united in one person. But despite James's ambitions, that was the only way that they were united. Thank you for listening to Pax Britannica and to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in this episode. This was the final of our launch episodes. If you've enjoyed the last 30,000 words I've spoken, please consider telling a friend about the show and leaving a review wherever you find good podcasts. Word of mouth is the single best way to help the show grow. Also, feel free to like me on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Next time, we have an interview with Sir John Elliot, Regis Professor Emeritus of Modern History at Oxford University. I speak with Sir John about the challenges that James will now face as he travels south to take up his new crown, and how his and his son's actions will echo throughout the century and beyond.